What are cryptocurrencies? Hey, hey, hey. What are NFTs? A non-fungible token. Time to buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin just seems like a scam. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Bitcoin! Okay, everyone. Well, hello and welcome to another installment of this limited series where we're uh, collaborating on the ledger with FWB. We're talking a lot about creative custody. Today, we're talking to Anna Bulbrook, and I will do a quick uh, try to kind of highlight some of her accomplishments. First and foremost, she's an, a violinist, a professional violinist. Um, you've heard her uh, in her band uh, Airborne Toxic Event, and then on lots of other things. And my favorite is uh, is is Lemonade by Beyonce. So that was like a pretty fun thing to to learn about you. Um, also, founder of many cool projects like Girl School. Uh, co-founder at uh, MetaLabel, and most recently, she's, let's see, let me make sure I get this exactly right, uh, music and performance curation at TED, which is super exciting, and I hope we get to talk about that a little later. So thank you for coming, and welcome. It's awesome to finally meet you. Thank you. That was perfect. I have no notes. 10 out of 10. <laughs> Great. <laughs> So I guess I, w- I would love to start just from a place of curiosity of like, when did you start playing the violin? And like, how does one like foray that into playing on some of the kind of like some of the most popular music product, like productions of our of our past uh, generation? I mean, I think uh, I started playing when I was four. Um, my older brother played, and I have his classic little sister, wanted to do what he did. Um, and then it kind of became our thing. And I think in our family, our parents just really invested in it. Like some families had a ski home. Some families did soccer practice. We did we did violin, like some people skateboard, you know? Um, and that was kind of our thing. And at a certain point, you're so in it. Um, like it took me around the world before I graduated from high school. Like when I went to college, I made the, the kind of painful, but like very telling decision to go to a liberal arts school instead of conservatory. But I still practiced and played really seriously through college. And then it was like in, in college, I think when I um, started playing with a screamo band <laughs> and was playing in like the crazy new music scene in New York and in the screamo band. And, um, and at the end of college, um, I threw this big intersectional, like interdisciplinary art party. And I, I think I, I thought I'd found my calling. So I quit playing violin, moved to California by accident, like really had this painful ego identity death that happened, not an ego death, an identity death that, that, um, came with just not being this person that I'd really been for my whole life. And then it was like this whole process of like becoming de-orthodoxed deprogrammed, unorthodox, um, just kind of like moving away from that classical music orthodoxy. And I fell in love with indie rock here. And there was like a crazy moment of indie rock that was happening in LA in like 2005 to 2010. And then, you know, out of nowhere, some friends called and said, do you want to come play with this guy? Um, He's this cool rapper named Kanye West. We're all playing with him on the side of a mountain in Colorado. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And then I, it sounds so simple now when I um, look at it, but I just stood behind him playing violin, looking at this mountainside and suddenly was like, 
oh, this has value. This is a thing. You can, you can play violin like this and it matters. It doesn't have to look like a concerto, the hardest thing on earth on a stage like this. You can play whole notes behind a rapper. You can play whole notes by yourself and it could be transcendent. Um, and this really incredible exchange of energy with a group of people who um, want to be present together in a moment. So I just fully reprogrammed my brain. I joined a band a couple days later and then that's what I did for like the next decade, basically from 23 but to that's, I, I find that like artistically, creatively is so interesting because yeah, what is the word you said? You said un unorthodox. Do deprogramming um, de or <laughs> yeah, but but I mean, what you mean is that you is it is it accurate to say you you know I mean you, you obviously as you grew up it was about like playing better, playing harder, playing more difficult, playing um, like sort of going deeper in that vector, and then you you found some other vector to, to travel down, like a, like an emotional vector, a social vector? Like, what, what, what is it? I mean, I think the values that I imbibed in classical music, I mean, I got an incredible technical education, and I understood, I, I learned so much from the process of training like that as a kid. You learn how to communicate. You learn how to give and receive really brutal, constructive feedback in a small environment. You learn how to pull your weight in a large group. You, you learn how to be watertight, you know, um, you learn all this, you learn all this cool shit. But what I didn't learn was, I mean, I think I, the other thing I imbibed was that it had to be hard and it had to be hyper-specific, hyper-specifically hard to be worthwhile or good. And I think the challenge in pop music isn't necessarily how technical or how perfect you can be, it's how, how much you can translate a feeling and channel channel a moment that someone else can connect to. So like some of my favorite players are, you know, the least technical um, and some of my least favorite players are the most technical. And it's not that you can, everyone technical is bad. It's just, it's about taste and, and um, connection over taste connection. And does, does what you're saying and making matter to people? Do they connect with you? Are they getting an emotional gestalt out of it as opposed to, you know, like, to achieve that, you also have to play a note perfect Brahms violin concerto or you're fucked, you know, like that's, that's the only way, you know? So I think, yeah, I, I, yeah. No, I, I always remind people that, you know, no, nobody um, uh, really thought that, you know, Kurt Cobain was the best guitar player that had ever walked the earth, right? He was not Ingve Malmsteen. Um, you know, he was, uh, he, he connected with people in a, in a very, very different way that, that, that talks about that, that connects with what you're saying what's interesting though i mean you did say you learned a bunch of cool stuff there but the stuff you mentioned i would i would argue is more about is more about like discipline and practice maybe than than cool stuff so it makes sense to me that that you know discipline and practice would would translate into other parts of your life i think discipline i'm sorry practice really is something that you know i keep i keep coming back to i think one of the things that I, i've noticed more as i've gotten older is you are what you do um, you know, and, and so I, when I, when I went, went to, to Beeple's studio and saw the, the room that's dedicated to every day is what I really saw was a, was a room that was dedicated to practice. It's almost like a shrine to, to practice. Is there, is there a part of, of that, that, that you learned as a classically trained musician? Yes. I mean, I spent hours practicing every day since I was, I mean, maybe not hours when I was four, but when you have this reservoir of discipline, it's kind of like this spear that you can point at anything. 
Um, it's also maybe something that could get you into trouble if you have that hyper-focus and that energy. Like, you know, I kind of sometimes compare it to being like a German shepherd where you need a hard day of work on the farm so that you can lie by the fire and not chew the furniture. But when I point that at whatever it is, like sometimes it's running, sometimes it's triathlon, um, and the rest of the time it's whatever I'm creatively trying to, you know, bring into being, it's like a very powerful resource and tool. It's like, ha like having a little engine. Um, and I also think like learning how to break things into pieces and put them together as like this sort of like extreme discipline of understanding how to learn and understanding how to make impossible things possible for you is just that that was one of the greatest gifts I think is just knowing that you can acquire new understandings and new skills because you practiced it forever like that that feels like one of the great gifts I walked away with also. So I guess what I was wondering then is like you had this moment of, you know, figuring out that you could kind of parlay that that practice and that skill into something totally different after the the kind of Kanye moment. And then, you know, I guess and and then I think through to like your current title, right, which is, you know, a curator. And so I, I was when I was reading about you and your trajectory, like I was really curious you know, like what the framework you use to kind of like curate your life and your career, right? Like how do you make that next decision path? Like what's the next cool project to work on? Like when are you going to get involved into something like girl school or meta label, right? Like how do you, what's the framework that you have to say like, ah, this is cool and like worth me putting that practice and effort into? I wish I had a really sexy answer for you, but I, I feel like all my best decisions have come from a place, you know, basically like a place of deep knowing and I don't know why. Um, I had a feeling I should play with Airborne. You know, we went on to get a gold record. I had a feeling I just liked Edward Sharp's demos. And so I chose to record on that album without ever talking about money. Um, and that first record that Edward Sharp did and it went on to be a platinum record. Like it's just... You know, I had a feeling I should work with Yancey. I also know Yancey pretty well, and I, I have a good sort of, um, I think I have a good sort of sense of who I think is brilliant enough and also has that sort of disciplined sphere and is strategic enough to get things accomplished. Like, I think I, I kind of um, have a good sort of, like, personal A&R meter for who to bank on and who I want to learn from, and I, I always... Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like when I can see something, it always almost always happens, even if it feels like a long shot. Um, but I have to be able to clearly see it. And it's not like I can clearly see everything all the time. It's like, but on these moments of inspiration or just understanding, I, you know, I can make really strange things or I can kind of find a vein into or a path into things that shouldn't happen happening. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I would say that in, in hip hop, we call that real, recognize real. But I also think that you're probably one of the people that actually makes things happen. As you said earlier, I, I always use this example. You mentioned triathlons, but like running a marathon is one of those things that like, you know, even running a 10K for someone that says, oh, I could never do that. And then they do that. Then some trigger happens in your brain where you go, well, wait. 
what's the other stuff that I think I can't do that I can probably do? And then you realize, as you said earlier, if you practice your way through it, you probably can do it. But also, um, you know, what I'm hearing you say is that when you show up to something, A, you show up because you've had some kind of flash of inspiration about it, but then you probably put in the practice it takes to get it across the line. But to fill in the blanks on the, on the question, like, you know, we, we covered the beginning and you mentioned, you know, a, a few of the things, um, including MetaLabel. And if people would like to know more about MetaLabel, Yancey and I did a podcast a few months ago where he explains uh, what it is. So we don't need to cover it in, in depth. But like, give us, you know, to, tell, I'm curious to hear a, a bit more of that, of that arc, um, you know, between uh, recording and, and touring and then, uh, you know, you know, working with a group of people on a startup, which is a very, uh, you know, different endeavor. Uh, and and I, so I'm curious, like, you know, what, what that is, how do you find it and what do you prefer? I mean, I think bands and startups have a lot in common. Um, to me, startups are actually a lot more rational because you're starting with, in this case, you know, I joined Metal Label Pre-Seed. Um, we did a seed round uh, and you know, you're starting with so many more resources than you have in music. Um, you're ideally making something um, useful for people, a tool potentially that they could use in their lives that maybe solves a problem for them, which is a lot more rational than making music that somebody, their only utility for someone to consume your music is because they like it. It means something to them. There's no one's going to buy your music because, you know, they need help playing music at meetings or something, you know, it's like, I, I don't, you know, it's like, there's no, there's no like sort of utility to music beyond. I just connect with it and I want to experience it um, outside of like situations like film and TV where music tells you how to feel all the time and um, has like a really specific job. But so to me, start a startup was kind of like the rational band, you know, um, and joining a Yeah. The idea that you move from idea to reality, that's natural to me. It, I've lived multiple impossible dreams. So, you know, joining a startup with a proven, with a couple very proven successful co-founders felt um, safe, I would say, comparatively to how I've lived most of my life. I just want to, I just want to be on record as saying that is a, an absolute demonstration of everything is relative. Because what I what I tell my teams is that startups are roller coasters, and if you don't like riding roller coasters, don't get on a roller coaster. Um, and you know, really working at a big company is like being on a cruise ship. And some people love cruise ships. And if what you love is cruise ships and not roller coasters, don't work at a startup. Right now, what you're showing us though is that relative to being in a in a band or being a musician, a professional musician, that a startup is actually like a steady paycheck. Holy shit. Yeah. Su supreme stability at a startup. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you need something, you just go get Comparatively. it. Seriously. I mean, it was like a huge retraining yeah. for me of oh. if you need, if you need something, go get it. If you, you know, instead of fitting your ambitions to your resources or like kind of toggling between trying to fit your ambitions to your resources, it was like set a strategy and then just say what resources you need. And I think that was a huge reprogramming and I was I just kept being like do people know how good they have it do you realize that you can just say I want a market ledger like this and you can just plop down millions of dollars and just do that like that is just not how it is when you're running your own band startup and you know it's because you don't have the resources you just you yeah you, you you don't have the resources till you have them you know so it's 
and I think, you know, I was raised by an entrepreneur. My dad had his own small business. Um, so my parents kind of were always like, you'll understand when you're the boss, you know, like, don't just think like an employee. And I, I recognize that that, you know, like I, I had that big transition when I went from being a sideman in a band with a strong leader um, to, you know, I started my own little solo project, which led me to found this festival. And then I really felt all these things. I, I actually ended up just apologizing to our lead singer later or more just sharing with him. Like I, you know, I thought I understood. I didn't. You know, now I understand better, I think, um, how you might have felt in certain situations. And I think it's just important to carry responsibility for yourself and for other people around you at some point in your life. I think it makes you a better teammate. I think it makes you, you know, it makes you understand why decisions get made. Like we used to have this joke in my band, like what's the answer to 99.9% .9 of questions? Like, why is this road torn up? Or who designed this this way? Or why is this like that? And the answer is always money. It's like, it's probably just nobody had money to do it. You know, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know where I'm really going with this, except to say like, you know, all these venture backed startups getting to experiment and sandbox and try stuff. Like it is a luxury. Do not take it for granted. Enjoy it. You know, like it's, totally. it's special. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally agree. And that, and it isn't, and it, and it doesn't go on forever. Um, so, you know, you know, as you experiment, learn from it. And, you know, it's like Zoe and I talk about, you either win or you learn. Those are the, those are the, the, the two potential outcomes. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it is 99% of everything is, is answered by, because people got to eat. Yeah, money. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean... I guess I have uh, related to that the the you either win or you learn question. So I actually uh, attempted being a startup founder myself in 2019, and I was playing with um, ideas around curation and and in more specifically, like you know, how do we uh, bring curation to the masses? Right. So and, and I was thinking about this in the context of, you know, just the kind of chaos of all of the information that we have access to. And that's for everything from, you know, music to movies to what do we read. And um, and so I am a firm believer in like curation by trusted sources. And so I would argue that your new gig is to be a trusted source and curate things for Ted. Um, but I guess to me, I always love like picking people's brains about like who their trusted curators are in the world. So I was curious, like, A, what you think about that kind of curation by trusted sources, you know, in general, and like where that leads us, because I think we're at this moment, right, of kind of like mass choice, right? And we need to kind of zero in on, on what is, what is good, right? But that's all relative, as we were just saying, right? Like, what music is good is the most subjective <laughs> question. Um, and so I don't know, I guess, you know, now that you are at a place where you get to curate things, um, maybe more broadly, how do you how do you think about that in your life? Who are your trusted sources? And then, like, what are you thinking about at TED now? Like, how do you even start to curate for that audience? Two things. I'm going to come back to, like, what is curation anyway in a little bit. But for trusted, maybe getting into trusted sources, I should first talk about what I feel about curation, which is there's, like, art world curation, which has a specific 
sort of like intellectual and historical relationship to um, the work that's being presented. And it really is sort of like a specific field. And then there's what I do, which I think is closer almost in a way to cultural producing or creative producing. And it's, I think it comes with a fair amount of responsibility, especially with a global platform like TED, which has, you know, an audience of 110 million worldwide. Um, and it's watched by everybody. So when it comes to sort of the music and performance programming or the, the people who might do something we call a performa talk, which is a performance and some sharing, um, I kind of, I think both about what I think the, the world will receive, but also understanding that my taste is a little bit in service of this broader audience. And so if I want to bring in something that might be a little bit spicier or more left of center, I need to contextualize it and find a way in so that anyone like your like I almost think about like a wedding, like your your old conservative grandma and your cool cousin and like, you know, your little brother and your dad are all at this wedding and they all need to find a way into this performance or this content. And so, um, so yeah, I think it's equal parts like, uh, trying to broaden my view. And the only way I think you can broaden your view is by having a pretty diverse group of trusted sources in your life. And for me, that's literally making friends with lots of different kinds of people and understanding that I don't have context. I cannot personally have context in which to make decisions in most genres of things and most communities. So I almost feel like an aggregator of lots of people's inputs from their own lived understanding and really intimate experience of their community and their lens on culture. And, you know, if I can be like a, a ladder towards laddering things into this like larger context, then amazing. So I, I, I do feel like curation is a group project and I don't want to take, you know, I can't personally take credit for, for all by myself making every decision I've ever made because I think it really is like a, a, a cultural mesh network. Um, and I think to be a responsible curator, you do need to have more inputs than just you. Um, especially when curating for something like the TED stage, which really can launch careers and it really can, you know, I mean, it, it is this pantheon of ideas and people and resources. And I think that comes with responsibility to not just put like, say, you know, white ladies up there or, um, all one style or just world music. Like, I think there's, you know, there's so many things that, um, yeah. There's a, there's a lot to include and a small, uh, you know, like a very small aperture that everything has to kind of flow through. Uh, not, not that many opportunities to put things on that stage. Well, in, in other words, as a curator, you're serving that audience. You're serving um, the audience and, and you're, you're filtering, and you're, really. Yeah. Uh, and then, and I think a lot of it's also frame, like kind of filtering your trusted sources and then framing things so people can understand um, and really connect. But I also think that the world is so curated there's literally like a playlist at the vet for calming songs for the dog. It's like, here's your curated place. So I, I also think that there's like a place where like curation and like curation in the world community of all kind of just like jump the shark um, in a big way. <laughs> I, that's why I think the word trusted that Zoe uses is, is, is so, is so important, right? There's a, there's curation and then there's your trusted curators because yeah, there are a lot of people that would, 
you know, we've all seen, you know, the record labels all have their own playlist companies. Hmm, wonder which songs they're going to recommend to me. Um, yeah, so, you know, the trusted, trusted curators are, are maybe, you know, few in number and, uh, and, and insanely valuable. And personal, um, right? You know, like, and, and like self-selected, right? Like my trusted sources of, of, of interesting shit are not going to be the same as, as either of yours. And that's, so you have to curate your curators first and then you get good curation. Is that, I think, how it goes? Well, that was, <laughs> I always come back to Umerhawk 2004, the blockbuster versus the snowball. And he talked about how, you know, pre-web uh, marketing was hyper-efficient and quality would deliver diminishing returns. But post-web you know, quality is hyper-efficient, but quality it gets interpreted as quality that you grew up with, Anna, in classical music, right? This sort of like absolute point out there that everyone is supposed to be driving toward, when in reality, as Zoe just said, quality really means tier one to me. Um, and that's the, you know, that's where it gets really individual and actually, you know, you know, ChatGPT, when I say, hey, make me a playlist of running songs, 80 beats per minute, no songs from the Billboard Top 100, uh, you know, ultimately it'll get pretty damn good at it. Uh, but that's another topic. So, I, Ian, I would of, say, am I sensing a follow-up conversation where we just talk about endurance sports? Because I'm, I, I'm I, in. Be, the, I'm in for that one. Zoe, Zoe, Zoe could be in for that one, too. Zoe and I ran the, the, the uh, San Francisco Marathon together. So. Oh, amazing. Um, <laughs> okay, more yeah, on that. Yeah, we could, we could, yeah. Well, by the way, that's also my, my TED Talk, although it does involve – that I haven't done – but it involves skateboarding. So uh, that, that, that I've, I'm sensing we're getting, you know, closer spiritually, um, you know, metaphysically to that one as well. Um, but I, I, talking about technology, I, I wanted to come to MetaLabel and, the, and, the, and the, the kind of this talk of creative custody, as Zoe mentioned at the beginning, um, completely, because I'm, I'm really curious to get into what, how you think technology has, you know, has, has impacted and, and, you know, I think it, at MetaLabel, you were really in the business of talking to people how creative endeavors in the future uh, might be different as collaborations between individuals. So I'm, I'm really interested to get your take on, um, maybe you could tell the audience exactly what you did at MetaLabel. I'm going to generalize and say that, you know, you, you mentioned MetaLabel building useful things for the creative class. And I think, you know, I always summarize those two things as, you know, one, a packaging format for media. Um, you know, I, we don't have album packages anymore. Um, well, you do actually, but you have to go to the record store to buy them. Uh, but, you know, we don't have them in our digital music, but you guys were building packaging formats so a digital album or magazine or, you know, collection of media could, could be packaged together into a package that could be opened the way that, say, a sealed pack of baseball cards or a sealed piece of vinyl could be opened. That was one thing. And the other is that I always like about MetaLabel and in my conversations with Yancey, it's that um, there's this acknowledgement that creative endeavors are usually done by a collection of people, but oftentimes the overhead of kind of formalizing that collection of people is, you know, like you, you and I make a four-song you know, EP together, what are we going to do? Go form an LLC and, you know, get a distributor and, you know, who knows what happens. Whereas you guys put on chain the, um, the kind of the downstream of those royalties. So uh, you could correct me if I, if I've misinterpreted what meta label is, but I'm also, you know, curious for you, like, why is that interesting to you? What did you find kind of the reaction to that to be? Because if I'm correct, your job was to, to, to try to 
convince people of these ideas, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, what convinced you and what did you find when you tried to convince other people and what do you, as a result, what do you believe the future is here? So my initial conversations with Yancey were really, he would just call me to ask, is girl school a meta label? Do you see this framework applying to you? It was it was almost just friendly, kind of friendly market research. It was kind of stress testing this framework against me and some other people. Um, and I was I was interested because I thought this is how I live my life. Um, girl school was sort of like a maybe like a sole proprietorship that drew from a deep well of community. It was all collaborative, even though I was sort of the person. Tell people briefly what Girls School is. So Girls School is an intersectional feminist festival that turned into a cultural programming studio, um, creative studio. So we did projects initially. I mean, it just started as a little local festival. Um, By our third year, we had Fiona Apple singing with Shirley Manson from Garbage with an all women identified choir and ensemble in front of 600 people in this tiny club here. And then, you know, Fiona trended on Twitter on Super Bowl Sunday because she called out the president of the Grammys for his remarks that women need to step it up to get more Grammys. <laughs> we had Karen O sing with a band of children. Some of those children are now the Linda Lindas. Um, you know, we had everybody from Phoebe Bridgers to the Kaylee 47 in this like 500 person club. Um, in those three years. And it was a pretty amazing run. Um, So, you know, I I met Yancey actually through his wife and we all became friends. And so we talked that way. And so as the project was kind of coming together, you know, partly my A&R Spidey sense went off and I was like, I think this has, this has energy. This matters to me. I'm really curious what it feels like. So if I can impact culture in LA and strongly, but in this like little sort of microcosm, what would it be like to try to make a bigger impact more at scale and share this way of doing things that, that has shaped my life? I've only really been part of collaborative projects, um, whether I've been a sideman or the leader or whatever. Um, and what would that look like to kind of bring that capability to other people? And I really joined the Web3 space kind of during like the most feverish height of the bull market when everybody was tokenizing. The world was, conventional wisdom was everyone tokenize, figure out the legal stuff later. Um, and I think like in the space of the first three months that I was kind of in the world, it, it all drastically shifted. Um, so Meta Label is creating a framework uh, and tooling for creative people to capitalize on their work online. And I think importantly, also creating the rails for people to collaborate more um, seamlessly and efficiently. And I think um, the other part of this equation is it's allowing people to release work in a much more sort of intermedia, cross-disciplinary way, um, which feels a lot more true to how people actually make and do things. Like, I don't know anyone who's only... I mean, I guess I know a couple of people who are only painters, for example, or only writers, but I think it's much more common for people to be in communities where you have a large group of different kinds of creative people and they're all friends and they all hang out together. And Yeah, you know, I, it's funny, I, I, I've mentioned this before and I apologize to the audience if, if I'm repeating myself, but I completely agree and it's why I, I actually um, get a little... Um, I always pause when someone wants to pitch me an idea, which is like Web3 Music, 
or Web3 fashion or because I, I just sort of part of my feeling is, is that those are very much distribution terms more than their artistic terms, right? If it comes on a silver plastic disc and holds 72 minutes of music, then it goes in the music store. And if it hangs on a coat rack, then it goes into the clothing store. But artists always want to transcend those boundaries. I mean, the very first time I met Kanye, he told me that music was a box and he had to get out of the box. Right. And so I love that it's like very much interdisciplinary because it just feels like that's a that's an opportunity that that kind of this medium, uh, the, the kind of dematerialized and easily distributed. I'm, I'm purposefully avoiding using the word digital um, to use something more specific gives us. Um, so I love that, too. I love that kind of acknowledgement. Yeah, I, it feels a little bit like if you give people an opportunity, I mean, there's lots of different tools available. And if you want to release a record by yourself tomorrow, use Bandcamp. It's all set up. Distribution's really easy. But I think if you're thinking more broadly or you want to collaborate a little differently or, um, you know, maybe, yeah, I think if you're thinking more broadly about how you create um, and you maybe want to be in a more sort of direct delivery system, like I almost view Metal Label as a delivery system for culture, but I don't know that that's sort of like our goal. You know, I don't know that's like language anyone else would use, um, but it really does feel like a cultural delivery system to me that allows the people delivering the culture a little more flexibility and freedom. And I think if kind of like if you build it, they'll come. Um, if you make Instagram, you'll get influenzas. If you make, uh, <laughs> you'll get other things too, you know, but like, you know, you get, you, you build something and you get a, a cottage industry that is able to thrive because the conditions have been set. So um, I think we're trying, you know, I met a label, you're we trying to set the conditions for collaboration and just more creative stuff to happen and with a more of a feeling of holding hands than being alone in the void. Okay. No. And now zooming away from that, from Meta Label specifically, and kind of back to to Anna, the creative person, we're early in that transition, right? Like Meta Label is a brand new thing and relatively unknown and relatively unused, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, obviously, I, I'm a believer in in that that you know that that comes as well, but I think it it takes a long time. But your what did you? What's your feeling having kind of lived and breathed it? Um, you know, in startup land for, you know, for a, a bit of time and being a creative person and living and working in a creative community where I'm sure it runs a spectrum of people who are like, wow, that sounds really cool to, I think it's all a scam. You know, like where, where are we and, and where do we go from here? I mean, I've worked with everyone from Holly Herndon, um, who I brought to TED uh, last year, um, to artists who just really fucking hate crypto. And I think that there's, I think it's like a very different place to come from when you primarily lived and worked as an artist um, for so long. Uh, I feel like my deepest allegiance is to creative people. And I'm sort of a hoe for whatever tooling, sort of uh, resourcing, Delivery systems serve the creative good and serve the project and serve the audience. So for me, all of technology is just, it's a little bit like this opportunistic space where it's all a in, in, uh, beautiful intermediary. And if something works, great. And if it doesn't work, I don't know. 
So I think the digital space or Web3 space, whatever, um, can work really beautifully for certain things. And I'm watching incredible projects happen, like what Holly Herndon and Matt Dryhurst do or what the duo operator do is really a lot of the times completely enabled by the availability of blockchain and they're using it as like a, a palette to play with. And then, then there's other stuff where, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense for a painter to in, drop an NFT collection because they don't have a digital audience. It won't really serve them. It, you know, like it's, it, maybe they should be a late adopter. So I think that there's a spectrum and, um, and for me, like the project of, of collaboration is bigger than the story of just crypto or one technology. I mean, I feel like collaboration is one of our greatest technologies, you know, <laughs> like it really is its own technology. Um, so I, I got a little lost there in the weeds, but I just, to me, it's, it feels like it's, it, it's really available for some people. And it's really like, like sort of the, the blockchain angle on creativity is like very still opaque for some people. And like, that's okay not every tool is for every person at this time, you know, like that, that it needs to be okay. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's how I kind of feel about it. I have, I'm like, like, um, <laughs> do you have a million thoughts? <laughs> uh, well, no. And I also, but also I, I wanted to, I, it was kind of tying it together with what you said about Bandcamp earlier in my head. Right. Because I was thinking about meta label versus band Bandcamp conceptually, right. Not as two brands, but, um, also, I think the fact that, you know, I remember when Bandcamp started uh, would have been, I'm going to go with 2008, 2007, 2008. If you think about, you know, how long a journey that was, I think that's, that should be a reminder um, to people in the space to go from, you know, only being for bands that you've never heard of to being like the way that I find out that there's a new album on Matador or 4AD or Sub Pop. Wow, I didn't imagine that that's you know what would what would take place um i do really see a place for digital collectibles on Bandcamp. i wish they were there personally right because i can listen to the songs for free or i can buy the digital download which i often do actually or i can buy the vinyl which i often do or um but if i could collect um you know something that shows i'm a fan of of, of this band there's many times that i that i would do it even if it's in kind of a cheap and templatized way because you know as a as a fan of music, I love showing my support for the band, right? Um, but then, you know, with what Meta Label is doing, it seems like kind of a, a level up in terms of a bigger package, a bigger project, maybe a different kind of collaboration, a collaboration that couldn't have happened. And that to me gets to more of what, what you're saying. I like the, I love the notion that collaboration is itself an innovation and also, you know, the notion that technology is really a tool. You know, people talk about technology as something that's good or bad. And I always say, is fire good or bad? Right. Um, you know, it depends on how you use it. You know, a brick can build a house or break a window. And, you know, we could, uh, you, if there's a new tool for collaboration, I'm sure we could use it for good and I'm sure we could use it for evil. Um, you know, so I was just, I was just thinking about, you know, what do you, I guess it was a very specific question for you within this is, you know, I, I do predict and tell me if you disagree that, that over time, you know, more creative people will see the value in many of these tools as opposed to kind of the casino and the, and, and the scammy and the get rich quick. 
what's what's your take on how that might happen in the artist community? I mean, I think the early adopters have found ways to make hay. And so it's it's happening. But I would still call that a bit of like the fringe culturally. Um, I think the other the other funny thing is when you're talking about creative people or artists, there's musicians, there's visual artists, there's poets and writers, there's performance artists. So I think um, certain classes of creator are extra empowered by the digital space, um, particularly movement-based or time-based work, I think is um, empowered in a way that it's it's been hard. I mean, even before we really had ubiquitous video, we couldn't really like capture and translate performance art. You know, so like uh, Marina Abramovich, the giant like she was really empowered by um, the advent of like the VHS camera even, you know? <laughs> so I mean, she's one of the first people to sort of film performance art and package it up and sort of get that ball rolling. So I think different classes of people are going to adopt it when it serves them. Um, I do think a lot of creative people are running on such thin margins that when they, that still for a large group of people, they're going to want resources that maintain predictable value for a while. So I think as long as, you know, I think people are pretty um, adventurous when they think there's an opportunity, but they also have such limited resources anyway. They're always scrambling to try to raise money to make stuff or try things that it's just, it's just going to have to be a little more consistently a win before it gets more widely adopted. I think it's just going to have to be a little less friction forward. You know, I think onboarding is still complicated. Um, you know, I think things like Ledger make it easier to hold your assets and whatnot. But I think even kind of understanding the language of what all this stuff is, is challenging for people who whose primary job isn't to understand their finances. It's to make creative work, listen to birdsong and make a painting. I don't know. You know, so I think it's, it's just going to be a journey, you know, and I think there are going to be surprising outcomes. Strange groups of people are going to prosper and we don't even know yet, you know, and other people are going to never figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, it definitely. It also feels like, yeah, I completely agree with you. Need more time on the clock because things have to get easier to use. Um, I always remind people, I can't remember the dates. I, I, I used to have them in my head and now I've forgotten, but um, the, di the distance between the invention of moving pictures by, you know, the Lumiere brothers or whomever it was, and then the first short film it was like 25 years or something. And I love that this notion that like what we consider to be like story through moving pictures, you know, it, it took 25 years of kind of this novelty of the invention before we got there. So I think I think that's always a, a process as well. And then I think also to your point, like, you just need leaders. You know, there were no double albums before Blonde on Blonde. And after Blonde on Blonde, there were a lot of double albums. You know, I mean, it's like sometimes you need a trailblazer, um, you know, to, 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 to light the path and to make some mistakes in front of you so you know what not to do. And um, I'm sure that, the, you know, the, just like with the Internet, the, the same thing will, will happen here. You know, I always re remind people that, you know, in, in 1995, the company that I worked for put the first you know, URL on a movie poster, but we didn't try to get you to watch the movie online. That came many, many, many years later. And 
a lot of people telling us it was never, ever, ever going to happen along, <laughs> along the way. So um, I'm sure this space will be, will be no different. But I do, I do think that like the connection between all of your projects and the ethos of, of what we're doing here is this, this like direct connection. I feel like you said it earlier where, you know, this connection between an artist and a, and a consumer, you know, what I always said in music is, I would say this to music business crowds, that there are two people in the music business who matter, people who make music and people who love music and all the rest of us are in the way. Um, but there are these tools that, you know, can, can provide value uh, along that, but we have to, we have to build them and that, you know, it takes a long time. They don't materialize out of thin air. Well, and I do think that one, like, interesting thing right now, and in, in just in general, like, when we're thinking of, like, what is the next utility that gets built on chain, right? Like, we do have to kind of wade through the, the PR mess that has been created by the casino, right? And so I think the other thing is going to be, like, what are the utilities that people find, you know, that they use every day and that like is it meaningfully improves their life or their ability to connect with things that they're fans of or, you know, build trust in institutions or whatever it is. Right. And we haven't kind of found those killer use cases yet, but I do think, you know, there is a deficit to wade through at the moment. And so it'll be interesting to see kind of like what the things that get built are like how they connect to people. Right. Because I think that is a big thing that's missing in a lot of these projects is like, you know, what is the, what's the, what's the big like life change that it's going to bring to me? And like, how is it going to get me closer? Maybe it's, you know, figuring out the, the distribution of, of assets among collaborators and, and, you know, maybe it's, you know, identity and, and health record, right? Like we don't really know what the killer use case is going to be yet, but I do think it's super, super interesting to see kind of like how you weave your way back into something where you're like reclaiming trust in this thing that's a little rocky right now. I mean, some people are super turned on by experimenting with the new thing and figuring it out and surfing the future. I feel like maybe, Ian, you're kind of in that class of like always wanting to be on the forward edge. And some people want to know what they're getting into because they're busy thinking about other things and it's just a tool for them. And I think like that whole spectrum, like for a huge shift to happen, you have to have the 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 group of people that are just like, all right, cool, I can use this now. I got it. Like I'm willing to I'm willing to adopt a new thing now um, because I'm pretty sure the value prop is there for me. And I think that's like, yeah, I think a lot of creative people are probably closer to the caboose of that train than the, you know, than the conductor. Um, but there are some incredible people up there fucking conducting, <laughs> like <laughs> driving that train forward, maybe off a cliff. Who's to say, you know, maybe it's like the super, uh, the super financialized like casino people are driving the train off the cliff and the creative people are like trying to keep it on track toward into the wilderness or something. I don't know. This metaphor is like a little, a little wacky, <laughs> but you know, I, yeah, I think, yeah. I, I think it's going to be a minute before the caboose, you know, follows, but that's okay. Like it's, this is, this is like, where are we in this val the, the Valley um, after the height of the excitement. And now you have the, the uncanny Valley or whatever it's called. Like, you know, valley of the valley of disillusionment. Are we at your, are we at, you know, one of 20 years or are we like five years in? Are we, you know, are we, I, I, yeah. Where do you think we are in this valley of disillusionment? 
Well, I, I think for for me, I always remind people that you know I started building digital music apps in the early '90s, '91, and then we launched Apple Music in in 2015. So that's the you know I know that it takes a long time, and you know in 1999 the internet was never going to scale because everyone's never going to have broadband, and in 2008 everyone's never going to have a smartphone, and then you know in 2017 you've got six billion smartphones on the planet, or maybe five billion at that point. But today that number is getting close to seven billion smartphones out of eight billion people. So you know it it, it happens in total, but it does take a long time, and it takes a lot of a lot of building and a and a lot of adoption. And you're right, there are some of us that are are you know want to be there day one because we see the promise and we overinvest and we create a bubble and we you know and and because we're so excited and so convinced. Um, and then, then there are a lot of people that, um, as Zoe's saying, you know, we really need to prove the value to, and they come over time when it really has meaning in their life. But, um, you know, from my perspective, you know, we have this, this new thing and it's not just digital value, it's digital stuff. Um, you know, and just like a lot of the things in our life, you know, don't, might have a lot of monetary value, but they have meaning to us anyway. Um, I think digital stuff will be that pervasive in our lives and, and we'll have, um, you know, digital mechanisms of exchange for for all kinds of value and and including art um but maybe that's a good lead into our our final questions that we ask everyone zoe maybe let's save the the bonus question for the end because the lead-in is so perfect like we we use this term creative custody but you know when we when we started zoe and ariel and i looked at each other and we're like wait what do we even mean by this but what does creative custody mean to you anna so i i had a minute to to marinate on this. And I was like, is it cultural preservation? Like institutions, libraries, museums, like literal edifices, you know, history books. Is it stewardship? Like what gets culturally programmed, celebrated, fostered? Like what's that proactive creation of culture? Is it, is it like, like holding and maintaining something like this active present thing of holding? Like, is it, is that custody, you know, with the possible intention of passing it on to someone else? And then I just, I feel like my whole interpretation of custody is flavored by growing up as a violinist. And in the violin world, you get these precious instruments that are hundreds of years old that other people have played, people beyond you will play. You know, I was like 13 with like, you know, $200,000 strapped to my back, just being sent into Boston to go to music school. And you take care of this precious thing. You, it's cared for by being played. It's cared for by... You know, people, collectors collect multi-million dollar instruments and lend them to like young players so that they can be, you know, maintained and cared for. And so I guess I, I guess to me, it kind of feels like this coming from the, that perspective, custody feels like if you really value something and it's part of a lineage, like how do you care for it with the intention of passing it on? Um, it's not just for me to have and then consume and then that's it. It's. It is kind of this longer trajectory. So I guess that, that will be my interpretation of it. I, I, I love that, partly because I believe blockchains will outlive humans. And I think that will actually work in that way. So it's, it's both spiritually and technically sound from my, from my perspective. Um, Zoe, you want to ask the, 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 the number two or you want me to do it? Uh, I'll, I'll ask a question. Um, I guess my, the question that I want to ask um, is, what is a what's a technology that you think will exist 
um, you know, say in 10 or 20 years that is really difficult to imagine today or something that will just be obvious, kind of like the smartphone in our pocket is now obvious, but was a pipe dream in 2008? I think, do you have like a Alexa or like a Google Assistant or Siri? Mm -hmm. Do you use any of these things? Yeah, it, it's, it's very funny. When I um, activate ours, uh, it makes like a little beeping sound in the Sonos in my one-year-old's room. And if I say the key words, which I refuse to say right now, she goes and looks up to the ceiling to hear the smart speaker. So like she definitely thinks that's God in our house right now. So yes, so we, uh, we unfortunately my... have those. <laughs> I had to move my Google Assistant out of my house and into my office because I got so used to just asking it what time it was, like all the time that I would be outside walking down the street and just want to be like, hey, what time is it? Hey, Google, what time is it? You know, like I mostly asked it to time things, set a timer and what time is it? So I could just not have to look at something. Um, <laughs> it's about like, what it was good at at this I, point in technology as well. But. I know. <laughs> incredibly useful, though. Incredibly useful to just always not have to look at a clock. And then I just had this feeling of like, I just want to ask the ether any questions. So I feel like this omniscient AI fueled cloud. Like if we think we have Starlink now, just imagine Starlink, but with like, you know, enhanced Alexa capabilities, but like better, you know. Yeah, the combination of Starlink, which means, you know, you know, high speed internet anywhere on the planet, mm -hmm. plus um, the world's biggest cloud, you know, voice mm -hmm. plus, plus chat GPT. Chat, chat, chat GPT 25, um, you know, which hopefully has answers which are factual. Yeah, hallucinates um, less. <laughs> the, you know, but yes, I, I, plus, you know, uh, Apple goggles. Yeah. Um, oh. Magic, magic, Vi Vision magic Pro. Magic, magic Leap can play next in this yeah. stage yeah. play. And uh, Apple can Basically, Apple. like everything yeah. that Black um, Mirror imagines, I feel could be true. Uh-huh. Yeah, I exactly. think Black Mirror yeah. is the Oracle, really. Yeah. <laughs> And we're all just so, riding that train, hopefully not off a cliff, into Black yeah. Mirror. <laughs> okay, so um, to, to, to wrap up, I just, I just looked at the clock. Um, Google didn't tell me. Uh, we have two more very, very important questions for you. Okay. Um, the first one is, you know, as, as a person that's had, you know, as you said, like a circuitous career i don't know my if you would, quote if you would, finger would, quotes of my career is actually I don't know if you would call, appropriate I mean, I would, that's what i would that's what i would say about my own so i i'm, I'm uh, i apologize if i'm, I fuck I'm putting with it. you in that same no i fuck with it that same, yeah, that same bucket. but um you know you 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 definitely like uh you know there there are many people and people who listen to this podcast that would love to move kind of from whatever it is they're doing into the world of crypto blockchain web3 um, what advice would you give somebody who, you know, wanted to do that but didn't quite know how to make the leap? I mean, I had such a handheld entry. Um, I would say find a friend who's really into it and take baby steps. Do things that are predictable and on the safer side. Um, don't do any trading anyone's ever recommended to you on Instagram. <laughs> uh, you know? I, I think it would be fi find someone who's really in the community, kind of like your crypto Sherpa, um, someone you like who's getting value out of it and, and maybe make a friend and, and hold hands on the way in. I think that I had a bunch of people looking out for me and I still made some like pretty amazing, hilarious mistakes. 
um, and felt overwhelmed a lot. There's a lot of new language. There's a lot of new ways of thinking about things. I think having a friend you can call, you know, um, and bounce things off of, or can, who can kind of lead the way for you is having a trusted source would be the way in, I would say. Full Great, circle. To bring it so all full circle. Words, call Anna. She's going to help. <laughs> she's going to help steward you through this. Honestly, yeah. Zoe, take, yeah. take, take us out. Okay. Last and probably most important question. What is the first concert you ever saw? And what is the most recent concert you ever saw? Okay. Probably the first concert I ever saw. I can't remember if it's Fiona Apple at the Orpheum in Boston. Um, or if it was Rancid and Operation Ivy in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, oh, man. Wow. <laughs> those were so Tim my played two in both first bands? concerts. <laughs> I can't remember which one came first. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, maybe it was Rancid. I, I just, I loved both those seminal records as a youth, clearly. Uh, and then... Zoe and I saw Rancid together once at a wedding. Just saying. She was much younger then, and she did sing Spice Girls Karaoke with Kathleen Hanna that night. But we'll tell that story another time. I, I'm applauding if you can't hear it in my AirPods here. Uh, my, my life is strange. <laughs> I believe you. I, I believe I, I, I believe you. That's a, that's a different podcast. We'll, Tim, we'll interview me on a different podcast. Tim actually has that on video. Um, so, Tim, if you, if you hear this, I would love to have a copy of that video. Uh, yeah. Okay, and the most recent concert? And the most recent concert on Friday, I went to see... Shirley Manson and Noel Gallagher play the Greek. But I also went to see oh. some poetry earlier this week. Aja Monet did her album release party with a jazz band and it was spectacular. So, I mean, it was just, it was just incredible. You know, it's just nice to see your homies shining and Shirley's probably one of the best humans on earth inside and out. So. Awesome. Thank you so much for for doing this with us thank you it's been I, so fun and then and now we're, we're going to do the performance i love talking shit with you guys athletics. <laughs> yeah. the performance, performance performance athletics follow-up next yeah, up exactly. all endurance sports <laughs> yeah yeah this content is provided for informational purposes only and is the sole expression of our opinion and should not be relied upon as legal business investment or tax advice do your own research any loss or profit is your sole responsibility. Stay safe.